So we started Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and we covered, well, we didn't finish, but we started to look at the first four words in Genesis. In the beginning, God. And then I figured we'd read the whole verse, okay? Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as Dan was saying during the call to worship, There's really only two options for how reality got here. There is naturalism or supernaturalism. Naturalism says all there is is the natural world. There's no spiritual world. There's no God. There's no angels. There's no demons. When you die, that's it. All there is is material stuff and We got here by a big bang. We don't know what caused the big bang, but one day there was nothing, and the next day, boom, a big bang. Uh, All the the material in the universe started to spread out, and it's still spreading out, and it formed into suns and planets. And then on one particular planet, uh, the chemicals were just right to produce the first little tad of life which grew into us. All right, that's naturalism. Supernaturalism says that's crazy. The only explanation is that an eternal, all-powerful being created reality. All right? Now, Genesis 1.1 doesn't give an argument for the existence of God. It presupposes the existence of of God. It says there was God before there was anything else, and He brought everything into being. All right? Now, the word presupposes is an interesting word because in the realm of Christianity, there's a thing called apologetics. Apologetics is a, uh, a defense of the faith of Christianity. Uh, we actually see it in 1 Peter. Peter says, But in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And that word defense in the Greek is apologia. All right? So here's what's supposed to be happening. Your life is supposed to be so different because Christ in you is changing you that people are supposed to be coming up to you and going, hey, you're different. Tell me, why are you different and what's the basis for your hope? And you're to give a reason or a defense for why your life is different and why you have this hope. Now, in the day and age in which we live, half the world holds to naturalism. Now, some of them hold to kind of uh, theism, kind of naturalism, but the, the prevailing scientific view is naturalism, that really all there is, all we can know is through the natural world. So in giving a defense for why you believe in Christ, you better be able to know a little bit about naturalism and defend the truth of theism against naturalism. Now, there's a kind of Christian apologetics defense called presuppositional apologetics. You go, what's that all about? Well, everybody ha- everybody's worldview is built upon a foundation. So 
Um, this is a foundation right here. Dan was singing over here, right? And Alyssa was over here on this foundation, okay? Every worldview is built on a foundation. The Christian worldview has certain foundational truths or presuppositions that we hold to. The atheistic worldview has certain presuppositions that they hold to. Now, what presuppositional apologetics does is it says this. Rather than just talking about random facts up here, floating around, let's examine the foundations of each worldview. And let's examine whether they are rational or not. Whether they hold up to scrutiny. So what presuppositional apologetics says is this. When you look at the atheistic worldview and the foundation upon which it is built, they aren't living consistently. The atheistic worldview, they say there's no God, but they have to borrow from the Christian worldview to build their worldview. Right? They're living inconsistently. So presuppositional apologetics tries to point out where they're living inconsistently and shows that you really need God to even think. You need God to live in this world. Okay? So we started by looking at some big old philosophical terms. Don't let these scare you. There's three branches, three main branches of philosophy. There's epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics. And all of reality can be analyzed uh, or, or categorized into these three branches. Epistemology is basically the realm that deals with knowledge and truth. In fact, it asks the question, how do you know that what you know is really knowable? It's thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking. It's really, you can, you can get really lost in the epistemological world, but um, we're going to, we're going to not use that word. We're going to use the word truth. All right, what, what, how do you know what's true is what epistemology deals with. Then there's metaphysics. That deals with the nature and cause of reality. What is the nature of reality? Where did it come from? And that's what we focused on last week, origins. Right? In fact, we, um, we, we talked about where did the universe come from? Where did life come from? Where does information come from? Uh, where does order come from? And then the last thing, which we didn't get to, was morality. How do you know what, what's right or wrong? How, how do you know uh, if it's ethical if it's moral to do a certain thing and not do another thing. Right? So these are the three categories. Now, just a quick review. Under truth, we pointed out that atheism or naturalism, which says there's no God, atheism has two fatal flaws when it comes to having certainty about what is true. Right? And let me say that again. It's important that you understand what we're talking about. Atheism has two deadly flaws when it comes to having certainty about what is true. Right? Here's the two fatal flaws. One, we have limited brains. And two, we have limited access to information. Limited brains and limited access to all information. 
Uh, Even Darwin said this about our brains. With me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? In other words, here's what, what Darwin was worried about. On the evolutionary scale of life, we started off as slime, and then let's say we move here to, to, the, you know, to dogs and to chimpanzees. Why do we think we're here when in reality we may, we may be a few notches to the right of a chimp? And you go, but we're smart. We have smartphones and the Internet and Google, and we've sent men to the moon. So? You know, when I look out my back, back window, there's another, like, two, our house backs up to another person's backyard, and they have two dogs. Uh, and these dogs, uh, they, they run the yard. They rule the yard. And they think they're pretty smart. Right? They keep those squirrels in line. And um, one of them is actually a show dog. He can uh, run up the ramp and go through who. So they're pretty smart. And what if they said, we've arrived. We're smarter than those squirrels. And you go, but wait a minute, you're here, we're here. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. But how do you know that where we are is anywhere near where we should be in the development of our brains? You're trapped in your brain, and you have no way of knowing whether your knowing is worth knowing. Right? Now, on top of the limited brain issue... There's the limited information issue. I mean, the scientific method, all it can do is observe reality and make observations and hypotheses and test them. And some things seem to be working. We have air conditioning and cars and airplanes. And we can do some amazing things, but do we really have all the information? And I mentioned the black swan. Uh, up until 1697, the known world, the civilized world, all they knew was that swans were white. There was no such thing as a black swan. So uh, white was the color of a swan until uh, 1697 when a Dutch explorer went to Australia and he found a black swan. And so the, the discovery of a black swan, the phrase black swan, has come to mean we thought we knew it all, but obviously we didn't have all the facts. Right? In an atheistic world, our only access to truth is through our brains, which may not be fully developed, and through our limited observation of the physical world. Both of those limitations demand, require, that the atheist or the naturalist live in a perpetual world of uncertainty about truth. How do you know your brain is functioning properly and how do you know that you have enough facts to draw conclusions? Now, you go, well, how is the Christian world any different? Well, in the Christian world, we believe that there's an omniscient, all-knowing God who exists. He created reality and he is Omniscient, his understanding has no limit, as Psalm 147 says. He has revealed truth to us in Scripture. 
Right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. So the omniscient, all-knowing God who created reality has created creatures whom he can communicate to, and he has communicated through his word to us so we can be sure we have a foundation of truth which the atheistic world can't have. We can know for certain that we have truth because we're plugged in to the creator of truth who has chosen to reveal truth to us. Now, if you reject that, you're lost in a world of uncertainty, which is why Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Until you humble yourself before the all-knowing God, you will never have certainty. But the fear of the Lord, reverence for God, is the start of, of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools are those who reject God, and they have nothing but their little brains and their little limited access to observable natural facts. Okay? So that's what we covered last week when it came to truth, epistemology. Now, we moved into metaphysics and talked talk about the origins of, of, uh, of the world and life and so forth. And here's what you have to believe if you're a naturalist. If there's no supernatural world, you have to believe, first, that matter comes from nothing. One day there was nothing. The next day, boop, all the matter in the universe popped into existence. You have to believe that life comes from non-life. You have to believe that information from non-information, we talked about all the, uh, the information in a cell. Encyclopedia is full of information. Where did it come from? And how did it evolve more complex, into more complex creatures as opposed to devolving into less complex creatures? And then you have to say design. The human nervous system and the brain and the eye and the circulatory system all seem to come together in this. Uh, just, d this design just happened by pure chaos? That's what you have to believe if you are a naturalist. Now, that's how far we got last week. Okay? Now, my philosophy coach analyzed the sermon. You go, you have a philosophy coach? Oh, yeah. If you want to be good at something, you need a coach. Caleb, stand up. <laughs> you go, what do you pay your philosophy coach? All the Taco Bell he can eat. Okay, Actually, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's not a deal in our house. <laughs> uh, so, so my wife gives birth to this child named Caleb, and he turns out, he turns out he's a genius, all right? So... Um, he actually is far smarter than his philosophy teacher at school. Yes, Moody Bible Institute, but we won't go there. So he really knows a lot. So I said, how do you think I did last week on my sermon? And he said, oh, that first part where you were talking about epistemology and truth, that was spot on. You nailed presuppositional apologetics. But when you started talking about origins and metaphysics, you fell out of doing presuppositional apologetics and you fell in to doing evidential apologetics. You go, what do you mean? Well, instead of attacking the foundation, 
you were hitting facts, floating, free-floating facts. For example, remember we talked about um, the time problem according to certain calculations, according to most mathematical calculations, the universe even 100 billion years old is not old enough for the development of a single cell. Right? And they would say the universe is 15 to 16 billion years old. There's not enough time for a cell to develop. And uh, a guy from Princeton estimates the odds against our universe randomly taking a form suitable for life is one out of 10 billion to the 124th power, which is a big, 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 big number. Right? And then we talked about, uh, even Dawkins says that the information in an amoeba, the DNA information in the, in the nucleus of an amoeba is equal to that of a 30-volume set of Encyclopedia Britannica's. But if you take the entire, uh, the entire amoeba, the DNA information, uh, if, you, if you set up the, the encyclopedias, it would scan uh, 16 football fields of encyclopedias worth of information just in one amoeba. Okay? But now what I'm doing is I'm giving facts, pretty powerful facts, but the problem is the atheist, the naturalist, is just going to interpret those facts based on their foundation, that God doesn't exist. Right? And you know what they're going to do then? They're going to start arguing with these numbers. They're going to say, well, I don't agree with, even though Dawkins says it, I don't agree with Dawkins. Or um, your calculations of 10 billion to the 124th power, I think it's to, to the 22nd power. And now, the existence of God depends on, on these free-floating facts. So what we need to do is get back to the foundation. Okay? So the Christian foundation says this about reality. Okay? The Christian foundation says in Colossians, all things were created through him, speaking of Jesus, and for him. By the way, Christian, everything was created by Christ and for his glory. So you go, well, I'm not that bad a sinner. I'm a pretty moral person. But if you're not living life for his glory and everything you do uh, resounds to his glory, then guess what? You're you're violating the purpose for which it was created. Even your television set and your car and your lunch. It's all created. It's all to give him glory. So a sin would be to eat without glorifying God. To drive without glorifying God. Everything was created for his glory. So he is the creator of reality. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the creator of reality, and the sustainer of reality. Okay? He has, uh, he sustains reality. Now, sometimes he does that miraculously through miracles, but most of the time, the way God sustains reality is through the laws that he has set up. Laws of logic, laws of physics, Laws of morality. These laws that he has put in place sustain reality. All right? That's a Christian foundation. 
There's not just nat- the natural world, but there's a supernatural creator who created it, and he sustains reality through law. Now, in a purely naturalistic world, no God, right? In a purely naturalistic world, laws of logic, laws of physics, laws of morality can't exist since they're not material things. All there is is the material world. And, you know, now the, the materialists will say, well, they just are. There's also no certainty that these laws won't arbitrarily change. Why would you have any consistency in a naturalistic world that things would be consistent? In a, in a theistic world... We are told that he is sustaining things. He is consistent. In an arbitrary, naturalistic world where there's no basis for laws, why do you believe that gravity pulls down today? Why don't you, why, how do you know it won't go up tomorrow? How do you know that oxygen is what you should breathe? And not, how, how do you know that, that, that logic, that the law of non-contradiction is going to be consistent tomorrow? Right? But the atheist can't live in an uncertain world. So he has to borrow certainty from the theistic world. He uses laws of logic to argue that God doesn't exist. He trusts that the laws of physics will be here tomorrow so he can drive to work. And he gets morally outraged at injustice. He shouldn't. Because he's borrowing these laws from a theistic worldview. Uh, there was a, a philosopher named Van Til. And um, he's really kind of the father of presuppositional apologetics. And he said once he was on a train and he saw uh, a father sitting on the train and had his little baby sitting on his lap. And the baby started playing with the father's face and slapping it and, and so forth. And Van Til said, that's a perfect picture of the atheist. Slapping God in the face, using laws of logic and reason to say you don't exist. All the while, the father has to hold the baby there for the baby to slap him in the face. Right? The atheist is being held in this Reality, by the laws of logic and the laws of physics and the laws of morality that God creates, and he uses those things to say God doesn't exist, betraying the fact that he has to believe in God to make his argument. All right, so that's, that's a precept. How did I do? Did I do okay? Good? All right. All right. So now, let's take a look at the last thing. Let's take a look at morality. The Bible clearly lays out what's right or wrong. Now, that's the rub. That's why the naturalist and the atheist doesn't want there to be a God. He has moral laws. So let's get rid of God, and we'll get rid of his moral laws. But guess what? When you get rid of God and his moral laws, you are left with an impossible world to live in. Now, God has communicated his laws in two ways. One, through the written word. You know, there's the Ten Commandments, there's the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible is full of what's clearly right or wrong. Okay? Now, he has also 
What about the person who says, well, well, what if, what if a person doesn't have the Bible or they're brought up in a culture where they don't have God's word? How will he know what's right or wrong? Well, God has thought of that question. And here's what he did. In Romans it says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, so here's the person who's brought up in a Gentile culture, doesn't have the law, what, what about him? For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Well, how do they know what to do? Well, Paul says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, even uh, in pagan societies, it's wrong to steal. And when someone steals, their conscience bothers them. They know it's wrong to commit adultery. They know it's wrong to lie. They know it's wrong to murder. Well, they don't have the Bible. They, no, they don't. But they're creatures created by God with a moral code written on their heart. So God has revealed right and wrong. Now, atheism says we are just the accidental product of stardust banging into each other. Now, if that's true, there's absolutely no objective basis for morality or meaning or purpose. It's just chaos. There's no absolute morality. There's no purpose. You're just an accident. There's no meaning. Face it. Right? But the fact is, nobody can live that way. Atheists become morally outraged at certain things. Especially when you cut them off in traffic. Or you steal their identity and take their bank account. They have no basis for moral outrage but they have to borrow from a theistic worldview and pretend that there are absolute morals and they get mad when somebody else violates them. Let me, let me give you a test case. Did you hear about this woman in Colorado who, uh, I guess on Craigslist, I've never used Craigslist, but you, uh, you make a deal with somebody on Craigslist and then you go find the person, and you exchange money, and you get a product. Right? So this woman arranged for a pregnant lady to show up to her house. I don't know what she was selling. She invited her in, brought her down in the basement, tied her up, cut her stomach open, and stole her baby. The baby died. And she left the woman to die, but the woman somehow was found and survived. Was that wrong? If you're an atheist, you have absolutely no ground to say that was wrong. Hey, survival of the fittest, baby. What's wrong with that? But even the, the most staunch atheist has to believe that that's wrong. Why? Because God created you with a conscience to know right from wrong. Now, on top of that, out there in Colorado, they don't know whether to charge this woman who cut her open with murder because the baby died. But guess what? Abortion's legal. So it wasn't a baby. Talk about a screwed-up society. You can cut a woman open, steal her baby, kill her baby. Well, it's not a baby. All right, so that's a, that's a whole different issue. 
But if there's any moral outrage in you as a naturalist, as an atheist, you're being inconsistent. What ground do you have to be morally offended? Right? Now, many atheists will say, well, I don't buy the whole God implanted the moral code. Where we get morality should be from culture. So we just look at our culture and try and figure out what is morally right and morally wrong. Now, um, think that through, though. Bertrand Russell was an atheist, very smart atheist. And once he was being asked about this, this issue, where does, where does morality come from? And he, he said, well, it comes from feelings and it comes from culture. And the person questioning him said, well, let me ask you this. In some cultures... They're taught to love their neighbors. In other cultures, they're taught to eat their neighbors. Do you have a preference? Which I think also exposes the fallacy of the liberal idea of multiculturalism. Multiculturalism says uh, all cultures are equally valid. It's arrogant to say, well, we're Western Americans and our culture is better than some other culture. Guess what? Our culture is better than some other cultures, as offensive as that may be. Take ISIS, for example. It's good in ISIS to, to sever people's heads and use the heads as soccer balls. The multiculturalist has to say, yeah, I guess that's their culture. But we know that that's wrong. That, that's, by the way, that's why some of our politicians are afraid to identify ISIS with Islam because they don't want there to be any uh, judging of another culture. Now, they'll say Islam is, or uh, ISIS is bad, but they'll try to separate them from Islam because multiculturalism, which comes from liberalism, which ultimately comes from atheism, says you can't put one culture over another. All right, so here we are. Anybody want to play soccer this afternoon? Right? Just sever somebody's head because it's all good. But we can't live that way. Some are trying. Some crazy people are trying. One of, the, the, uh, one of the, the, the few people on the planet who ever tried to live consistently uh, with atheism and no morals and no value and no meaning was a philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, German philosopher. He said, let's face it, there is no meaning. And we are just evolved. So... Let's just face up to that reality. He went insane. And for the last 13 years of his life, he spent 13 years in the darkness of insanity while his godly Christian mother was at his bedside. A big fan of Nietzsche was a guy named Adolf. Adolf Hitler. A fellow who survived Auschwitz, whose name was Viktor Frankl, Frankl said this, the gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazi liked to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz 
Treblinka, and Maidenink were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. If it wasn't for Darwin, there wouldn't be Nietzsche. If it wasn't for Nietzsche, there wouldn't be Hitler. Now, um, I think a fair question to ask a Darwinist is this. At what point in the evolution of man did survival of the fittest change from being a good thing that moved us forward into a bad thing? And who gets to decide when we've evolved enough that we shouldn't continue killing out the weaker races? In other words, what if on the evolutionary scale, okay, here we're slime, here we're monkeys, here we're men, we think we're here, so we should stop killing weaker races. Maybe we're right here, and we need to kill more people off. Right? If naturalism is true and survival of the fittest is good, doesn't that make Hitler a humanitarian genius and not evil? See, it all depends on your foundations. Now, an atheist might object and say, it's unfair to point to Hitler. Everybody has their bad apples, right? There are plenty of good, moral, humanitarian atheists. And there are plenty of evil Christians. My answer would be this. What's this good and evil you speak of? What are you talking about? How can atoms that have accidentally banged together and formed into blobs be good or evil? It's like talking about good or bad sand. It's just there. It's not good or evil. There's no objective standard for good or evil or right or wrong. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. What do you mean there are good atheists or bad Christians? Where do you get this standard of good or bad? You're borrowing it from the Christian worldview, slapping God in the face while sitting on his lap. but the atheist can't live consistently that way. He'll go crazy, like Nietzsche. Again, when the Gentile who doesn't have the law does by nature what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, that God wrote on their hearts, right? While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Your conscience and your, your, your being appalled at Hitler and your being appalled at this Colorado woman shows you that there's a moral compass. You must live that way. Why? Because God created you that way. There is a God. There is a law. There is a right. There is a wrong. Now, that creates a dilemma. You know that law that you know is in there? Don't lie. 
Guess what? You've lied. I've lied. Don't commit adultery. Oh, I've never done that. Jesus said if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. Don't steal. How'd you do there on uh, your taxes? Did you claim everything right? Did you get it all right? Okay. In other words, we've, we've violated the law, and we know God is a holy God who will hold us accountable. Now, all of this today and last week leads up to this problem. You know there's a God. You know he's holy. You know there's a moral right and wrong. You know you have violated it. And you know judgment day is coming. What will you do? you got two options. Option one, pretend he doesn't exist. Blindly go to your death, pretending there's no judgment day. That doesn't take away the fact that there is a judgment day coming. Or two, you humble yourself and you say, yes, I have sinned. I have violated your law. I've tried to run from you. But I admit my sin. And then you hear the good news of the gospel that God, yes, while he's holy and perfect, is also loving and he solved your problem for you. He became a man and was nailed to a cross in your place to pay the debt of your sin so you can be forgiven and you don't have to fear God anymore. You don't have to wish him away. You don't have to philosophize him away, which doesn't work. You can actually face him and embrace him because of Christ. You don't have to fear the coming judgment. Why? Because your debt was paid. Isn't he a good God? That he would send his son to die in your place so you can be forgiven and spend eternity with him. You say, what do I need to do to tap into what he's done? Believe in him. You see, if there was anything you could do, we'd goof it up. We'd fall short. So the good news is Christ paid the price for you and you get tapped into him and you get his benefits by believing him. You stop pretending he doesn't exist. You stop denying and you fall on your knees and you receive him as your Savior and Lord. And I want to pray a prayer now. And if you've never done that, I'd invite you to invite Christ to be your Savior and Lord. Let's pray.